Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. The international humanitarian system, the way in which the UN governments and NGOs respond to man-made crises and natural disasters, is stretched beyond capacity. In fact, it's fair to say it's broken. The inability of the international community to confront multiple man-made and natural disasters, like the crisis in Syria, Iraq, South Sudan, Ebola in West Africa, and the earthquake in Nepal, is a profound contributor to insecurity around the world. And the fact is, there are more people displaced around the world today than there has been at any time since World War II. Donors are not committing enough money to provide for the basic needs of people affected by sudden crises, and the international community is not doing a sufficient job of preventing the outbreak of conflict, ending current conflicts, or mitigating the effects of natural disasters. These failures and proposed solutions to these ongoing challenges are the subject of the first-ever World Humanitarian Summit, which kicks off in Istanbul in mid-May. This is a UN-backed affair, which includes the participation of member states, civil society, and the private sector. And one participant is on the line with me today to discuss some of the problems and the solutions that this conference hopes to address. Shannon Scribner is Oxfam America's Humanitarian Policy Manager, and in this conversation, she offers an insightful preview of what to expect from this conference, some of the more controversial debates about the role of humanitarian relief and international development that this conference has already sparked, and how a first-ever World Humanitarian Summit can help mend a broken system. Before we get started, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who has reached out to me over the past few weeks, either via Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or via globaldispatchespodcast.com. And an even bigger thank you to those of you who have left a review on iTunes of the podcast. I really do appreciate that. It really does help uh, increase the visibility of this podcast in the eyes of people using the search platform on iTunes. And an even bigger Thank you to those of you who are sharing the podcast on social media, on Facebook and Twitter and, and LinkedIn. It's really been growing substantially over the last few months. And I think, frankly, that's due to you out there listening, due to word of mouth, due to your sharing it with your friends and colleagues. We're reaching thousands of people now. It's, it's really pretty impressive. And thank you. Thank you to you listeners for helping to make this thing such a success. And now here is Shannon Scribner of Oxfam. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So, believe it or not, the idea of the summit started three years ago. So, if we look three years ago at what was happening in the world, the UN was responding to four 
of what they um, determined to be L3 emergencies. So these were very large-scale emergencies in terms of scope. So it was Ebola, the Ebola response. It was Syria. It was the Central African Republic. And then it was Iraq. And that was the first time in their history that they were ever responding to four of these crises. Usually one would be um, the norm, but to respond to four um, was something that they were completely overwhelmed. Um, the funding wasn't there. And so three years ago, Secretary General said, we, we need a new way. This is no longer working. We have too many protracted conflicts. And so let's bring, you know, the world kind of together in terms of the humanitarian actors for a summit in Istanbul on May 22nd and 23rd. Um, excuse me, it's the 23rd and 24th of May. So three years ago, um, there were these consultations that happened, and it was humongous. So they interviewed about 23,000 people or consulted and interviewed about 23,000 people in 153 countries. And this was online, but it was also face-to-face consultations. And these were like NGOs, but also government ministers and civil society and, and, and all that? Exactly. So it was UN member states like the U.S. government and um, the U.K. government. And then it was multilateral organizations like the UNICEF um, or UNOCHA, which is the United Nations. Um, they do the humanitarian assistance operations for the UN. And it was NGOs like Oxfam, civil society organizations, the private sector, but also people who were affected by humanitarian crises as well. So that's really important because we actually had people who were um, at the end of you know, what was happening to them in terms of conflict or natural disasters also speaking in these consultations that happened over the last three years. And so what was the UN trying to accomplish with these consultations? What information were they trying to gather? So they were trying to get as much feedback um, as they could, which obviously they got a lot of feedback feedback in terms of what needs to change in this system. What is Why are we so overwhelmed? Why are we underfunded? Are we reaching people in need? Um, what can we do better? And so they really took these, you know, 153 countries where they had these discussions either online or in person, the 23,000 people that they talked to, and they did this huge synthesis report. It was, I think, about 84 pages long, and it kind of it tried to bring everything together according to these are the themes that we're hearing over and over again. And so they started with this huge report that they called the synthesis report. And then um, on February 2nd, actually, the Secretary General took that synthesis report and narrowed it down to a 62-page document that was entitled One Humanity, Shared Responsibility. And that is the core document for this summit where we're supposed to look at that document and the core commitments in it and come up with a better way forward. So what are some of the highlights of that uh, Secretary General report? And I should say that the process that you describe of large consultations generating a synthesis report is sort of like standard UN procedure these days, uh, but it's still kind of remarkable uh, that, that they're able to pull something like this off. Um, but what does this this um, uh, Ban Ki-moon Secretary General's um, summary of the synthesis report say? Like, what are the big takeaways? 
Right. So there are five core responsibilities that are outlined in this report for all stakeholders that are attending the summit to consider and to come with strong commitments about how you're going to uphold these five core responsibilities. And the first one is on political leadership to prevent and end conflicts. And this is really for member states. Um, So that is how do we end these protracted conflicts that are creating so many displaced people and so many people living as refugees. The second one is on upholding the norms that safeguard humanity. And this is really about international humanitarian law and human rights law. And it's about the number of conflicts that we're seeing today where there where people aren't upholding international human um, human rights and humanitarian law, and people aren't being accountable um, for that. So this is barrel bombs in Syria. This is what's happening in Yemen with the with the Saudi Arabia coalition um, bombing certain areas that are impacting civilians. Um, this is you know the MSF hospital in Afghanistan that was hit. Um, in Kunduz in Afghanistan by the U.S. military. And so what what's the accountability when that happens? And so this is a big issue going into the summit as well. The third is on leaving no one behind. And this is really dealing with the 60 million people today that are living as refugees or have been displaced within their own country. Those are the people that are being left behind. They're not going to be able to be part of the sustainable development goals or have that access to education or a job because their their lives have been stopped. They're living as a refugee or they're displaced within their own country and their lives have literally come to a standstill. And then the fourth is on changing people's lives. And it's about delivering how we can, you know, deliver aid better and, and need. And this is really about... Um, localization of aid, which is a big topic going into the humanitarian summit so that first responders or local actors, whether it's a national government or a local NGO or a national non-government organization, um, even the private sector, they're saying, we are being left out here. You're bypassing us. You're in our country and you are not supporting us, building our capacity and working with us. Um, And that also will deal with um, development and humanitarian divide where development actors are doing one thing and humanitarian actors are doing something separate and bringing those together. And then the last one is about investing in humanity. And that is really about how are we going to fund all of this? How are we going to fund this new approach? How can we bring more funding into this system and how can that funding be more efficient? I mean, in a way, the priorities described sort of can fit under like the heading of like how to, you know, another UN conference to save the world. Um, like what are the concrete outcomes that you expect in each of these areas? I mean, saying yeah. something like strengthening, you know, the, the rule of international humanitarian law that says you can't bomb MSF hospitals. I mean, how does that translate into policy proposals generated at this conference or in the run up to this conference in sort of meaningful ways that can be adopted by member states? That's an excellent question, and there's a plan for that, but how it actually works at the end of the day um, remains to be seen. So what they have done at the World Humanitarian Summit, and and just to say, and maybe we've already said this, but this is the first time we've ever had a World Humanitarian Summit. So there's no, you know, no example. There's nothing that we've done before. We've had the UN, you know, conferences. We've had G20s, G8 um, conferences, but we haven't had a World Humanitarian Summit. So first time we've ever done this. But what they've done is they've set up, so the world, uh, the United Nations has, is setting up seven roundtables. And at these seven roundtables that correspond with those five core commitments, but there's an, there's one on women and girls, which is an additional point here. Um, 
And then they've separated the changing people's lives into dealing with natural disasters and climate change and then um, a separate standing one on delivering aid to end needs. So sorry, they have these seven roundtables. The idea is that if you get invited to be on a roundtable, and there'll be about 50 to 70 people, you come to that roundtable reading the document um, for each one of these roundtables that already has proposed commitments. If you come to this roundtable, we want you to make commitments along the lines of how you're going to uphold IHL, how you're going to make sure people can be accountable when they don't hold up IHL, how you're going IHL, to make I should sure- say, is international humanitarian law, like the laws of war. Yes. Um, and, you know, how are you going to make sure that if someone is living as a, as a refugee for 17 years in a refugee camp, they actually have access to get a job. They can actually have a livelihood. So people are expected to come to these roundtables with commitments. So proposed commitments, answering how they're going to actually change. And then those commitments are all going to be captured in kind of a final commitments to action report. Okay. It becomes a little more complicated, though, after that. Like, once you have these commitments and you have um, a summary of those commitments, what do we do then? And, and there's a few uh, ways forward, but um, a lot of it is very murky right now about taking that forward. Um, so one of the big uh, themes that uh, Ban Ki-moon has been pressing is to, you know, kind of close the divide between the humanitarian response sector and the development sector. And, and you alluded to this before. Uh, but the idea basically uh, is that sometimes humanitarian agencies, those doing human- like emergency relief work, don't necessarily take into account long-term development imperatives while um, undertaking their relief work. And one of the proposals, it seems, or an overarching theme of this conference, it seems to me, it's to kind of close that humanitarian and development divide. Can you like talk about uh, a little bit of what that looks like in practice? I mean, for example, like like Oxfam, you do you do both humanitarian relief and development work. So, I mean, what how how are you approaching this this question of the humanitarian uh, development divide? Yeah. So, um, the way you set it up is exactly right. So, humanitarian actors, when they're responding, they should also be looking at recovery, thinking about the next time that crisis will hit, whether it's a conflict or maybe it's a natural disaster. So, what can they do in their response in order to ensure communities maybe have the resilience to be able to um, sustain the next shock that's going to hit them. Um, but at the same time, it's also about development actors. So if I am, you know, Oxfam has programs on education, we have programs on water and sanitation, we have programs on, on healthcare as well. So when we're doing that development programming, are we thinking about the potential for conflict? Are we thinking about floods? Are we thinking about droughts? What is going to set back these development gains and what do we need to incorporate into our development programming to make sure that when that shock or that conflict hits that particular country or the region where we're working, that we're ready to respond to that. And if I could be frank, it's not happening enough today across the board. Oxfam, other INGOs, UN agencies, um, donors themselves. We still have um, these silos where humanitarian work is, is one area, development work is in the other space, and we don't work well together. We but isn't also- there, should I say, 
isn't yeah. there sort of like a logic to that though that sort of makes sense that you know humanitarian relief workers they're like the firefighters you know they're the ones meant to put out the fire in an emergency they're not the ones to sort of construct the house it's it's sort of like a different a different job and you know you look at at the decision by doctors without borders msf uh to pull out of this conference and at least to me it seems that that decision is um predicated on the idea that they're very dedicated to maintaining these silos uh, for kind of logical reasons. There are absolutely groups like MSF that that are dedicated to those silos. From Oxfam's experience, those silos are no longer working and they're part of the problem. Um, if we look at what's happening with El Nino right now and the number of countries that it's been affected, we, we're looking at Ethiopia in particular, and we were looking at how drought is now common in the Horn of Africa you know drought's going to happen. It's going to happen every couple of years. So for development actors to just have drought as a contingency plan where they deal with it when it happens no longer makes sense in today's world, especially when you have climate change that is increasing the disasters that we see around the world. And if you can plan for something, why would you not plan for it? Um, so we're talking about development and humanitarian actors working better together. This is Oxfam, some of Oxfam's commitments going into the summit are actually to do that work better so that when we know a drought is going to happen and we have forecasts, we know we knew El Nino was coming long before it hit. The same thing with the Horn of Africa drought where we saw famine in parts of um, Somalia. We knew it was coming a year and a half before, but no one moved or acted until it was upon us. Those days can no longer continue or we're never going to be able to address this. So it should be about development and humanitarian actors doing that programming together. If you know the drought is going to hit and you have, you know, even a year out to plan for that, bring in your humanitarian actors to actually access the communities that the development actors are already working with. But, you know, you could actually use prevention and preparedness with those, with working with those people, whether it's beefing up their livestock or making sure they have the water that they need, whether it's making sure the markets are strong, you know, you can, the drought's still going to hit, but you can be addressing things before that drought hits using the same beneficiaries in the same areas where you're already doing that development work. But another, you know, problem with that too is that development actors are so focused on reaching the sustainable development goals and, you know, we have all of these benchmarks on education and on healthcare. And so that's the focus. But the reality is that every time that disaster strikes or a conflict hits, those development gains are being set back. And in Ethiopia right now, children aren't going to school. They're not going to school because right now they're looking for food and for water. Um, another uh, focus point that, of this conference that you alluded to uh, as well was addressing sort of financing and funding gaps um, for humanitarian relief and and for a uh, more and for a development and relief nexus that work more hand in hand in the ways you just described. Uh, but the fact is, there's just like not enough money in the humanitarian system to fund all the current emergencies, let alone any new ones that might emerge. What sort of proposals are on the table at this conference or beyond to try to close that that funding gap and try to get just more money to to service these kinds of uh, emergency relief causes? So. One of over excuse me over the last year, um, the Secretary General actually assigned a committee. It's called the High Level Committee for Humanitarian Financing to look at this idea of what should we do to change um, 
the funding situation because there's not enough money in the system, as you said. So this was a um, high-level panel that got together and put out a document that everyone is referring to as the grand bargain. And the grand bargain is about how we how are we going to finance this. And so there are different um, recommendations. These are all recommendations at this point. So things about along the lines of reorienting um, official development assistance towards the reduction and prevention of situations of fragility. So using development funding to not just do health, education, agriculture, but to look at some of the things we were just talking about in terms of drought or even fragile states or or potential conflict. So the Um, idea is what, like USDA would fund like conflict prevention efforts? Um, yes. So it would be official development assistance that would be used Pardon me, USAID. of just the humanitarian funding. Yeah. Not USDA. USAID. I just interviewed Tom Vilsack. It's, it's been throwing me off all week. I've been <laughs> no, I keep it throws me off USAID too. There's USAID. too many acronyms okay. too. Um, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. So, so, so the, so the question is then that, that like that, um, you know, the, the, the structure of development assistance is something that's been built up over, over decades. And I have to imagine it will be probably pretty difficult to just kind of change, change it, uh, in any sort of rapid way. I think it depends on, you know, it depends on the, if you're talking about a donor, so it would depend on the way USAID funds things right now. If you're talking about, um, a UN agency, I mean, every, actor within the system funds things a certain way. But I but fundamentally what they're talking about just and this is just one of many recommendations, but on the development humanitarian nexus is there are, you know, so donors already do they do provide funding, development funding for disaster risk reduction, for example. And that is just um what we talked about when you know there's going to be a risk of a certain disaster, then you do you invest funding to actually reduce that risk. So Right now, we do have official development assistance that goes towards that, but it's 0.4% of all the official development assistance over the last 30 years has gone to do that. So Ban Ki-moon has called for a 1%, so 1% of official development assistance to actually you know, increase the investments we're making in disaster risk reduction. Oxfam is actually calling for 5%. So we don't know what percentage it will, you know, people will commit to at the end of the day, but that's just one example of what we could do um, to actually start funding some of these disasters even before they hit or conflicts. The World Bank is actually getting really involved right now. Um, so World Bank right now, you know, they, they'll do loans, but the loans are in stable countries. The loans aren't in, you know, a humanitarian crisis situation. So now there's a lot of discussion about the World Bank actually um, investing World Bank dollars into some of these crises. So they're looking at Lebanon and Jordan in particular, where there are, you know, in, in the region, there are 4.2 million refugees. If you look at Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, and Iraq, and they're looking at investing in jobs, investing in um, social services for people as well. So the bank is actually entering the discussion and will be at the summit as well. And then there's a lot of discussion around more funding to first responders or local actors to be more efficient and effective and building up their capacity so that the international community doesn't need to parachute in at the end of the day. So it's interesting. So so from the World Bank's perspective, this summit could be the point after which they more deeply get involved in humanitarian emergencies. Yes. And I think people see that as a blessing, but also as a real concern. Um, and that is because 
you know, the bank hasn't been in that space before. And human, and this also addresses the humanitarian development divide because humanitarian actors have these humanitarian principles. They're impartial, independent. It's about saving lives. And as you have development actors come into this space um, and the World Bank in particular, what does it do for those principles? What does it do for independence and neutrality? And this is MSF and some other um, organizations' concerns, you know, as well, and they're, they're valid points, but um, it will get muddled. It will, and so we we need to be really clear what it means if the World Bank enters this space, and if the development actors start taking on some of the humanitarian issues that are a development problem as mm-hmm. well. And uh, just just unpack that a, a little bit. So the humanitarian principles that you 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 describe. I mean, it's basically it's impartiality, as you said. It's you know basically the mm-hmm. idea uh, that age apolitical and that should own like the purpose of, of aid should just to be you know to, to feed the hungry basically it shouldn't have an overarching political mission but development by its kind of very nature is sort of like a political enterprise um, and so that's I think where some of the, the tensions arise yeah I think that's um, a, an interesting point I, I hadn't really thought about it that way but um, I can I can see that point and I guess it goes directly to the the point that um, often development actors will work with, well, the World Bank, let's look at the World Bank in particular. They work with national governments. They work through national governments. Um, and so that's very different than the way humanitarian actors, especially in certain countries, work. Um, they often don't work through the government. They'll work with local actors like a local non-government organization, a national non-government organization, civil society organizations, but not necessarily with the government. And I guess that's when you get into some of these political issues as well. I think Oxfam would say that to bypass the government is not the right thing to do because it does, um, it produces many inefficiencies and that we shouldn't be bypassing not just the government, but also the local actors in that country. And, you know, an example would be during the Haiti earthquake, when um, the international community went into Haiti, they set up kind of parallel structures to the government and they held meetings in French where all the local people spoke Creole and so they weren't really included. So I I can see both sides in that you have to really think about how you're going to do some of this development actors entering the humanitarian space. But at the same time, we should be doing more to work through local systems um, whenever possible because it's creating inefficiencies if we create these parallel systems. Um, finally, uh, what are you looking forward to most from the summit? I assume you'll be there. What, what does your schedule look like? Are, are there any particular meetings that you uh, are most looking forward to? So I, I will be there. Um, it's interesting because about 5,000 people are expected to show up for the summit. I think about 2,000 people will actually be allowed in, in the doors of the summit into, into these key kind of events, which include these roundtables as well as these 15 different special sessions. And then there's some side events as well. Um, but you have to receive an invitation. So we have a small delegation. Uh, I'm still waiting for the invitation, but I have my ticket. So I'm planning to go. And what I'm hoping will happen is so Oxfam would like to be on some of these roundtables. And in particular, the Changing People's Lives roundtable is something that I'm hoping to participate in and support our president of Oxfam International, who hopefully will, will be at that roundtable. Because Oxfam's been doing a lot on um, localization of aid and the importance of increasing resources to local actors. And right now, if you look at the direct funding that goes directly to the local actors, again, that's the 
national NGOs, that's the local NGOs, civil society, or even the national government, government, it's less than 2%. Um, most of it goes to INGOs, UN agencies in particular. Um, it doesn't go directly to those who are the first responders on the ground. And they're not always best place to respond, but they often are because they speak the language, they understand the culture, um, and they do not have the capacity to respond because they're not getting the funding they need. So that's what I'm hoping that I'll really be able to kind of push that point at the summit, and that will also have kind of a clear outcome of where we go from here uh, when the summit's over. Uh, all right, Shannon, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Thank you so much. Alrighty, thank you all for listening, and yeah, looking forward to seeing how this uh, this conference shakes out and the real outcomes that result from it. Um, I think I mentioned this uh, before, but if you out there are listening, if you're listening to this and you are with an organization or an entity that you think might benefit from reaching. Uh, a podcast audience, this podcast audience, do get in touch with me uh, via the website about advertising opportunities. Uh, we have some advertising scheduled over the summer. We have some open slots. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, send your email my way and I'll, I'll let you know about our rates and let you know about how podcast advertising works. All right. Thanks so much. We'll see you. Bye.